way. Does it bother you that people kind of still consider you this like teenage podcaster? I love it. Keep thinking I'm a podcaster. Keep thinking why? I'm a- Another why besides mom? Michael, I was a fat kid at school who was always told that that'd be the one, you know, that's single forever and without friends. And I was told that I was like the B student, not the A student. I was told that whatever, whatever, whatever. And you know what? I spent my life being underestimated. Being underestimated is one of the best superpowers in the world. Keep on thinking I'm a podcaster. And I'll keep on writing $75 million series B checks and leading the round for Triple Dot like we did. And so, you know what? It's okay. I, I, I don't mind what, and this takes time. I think I did a lot before. Shaq taught me so much about actually, you know, I remember once I wasn't on the list for like, I don't know, some TechCrunch list. And I wrote some snarky response to a tweet. And Shaq was like, seriously, seriously, you know what? Different game, Harry, different game. You have to change game. What you did now to get here isn't what's going to get you to the next level. I don't, I don't mind what people think. I know what I'm doing. I'm operating against my plan. The plan is going exceptionally well and better than plan. And so if people think I'm a podcaster and they don't see it coming, fantastic. I am super duper duper excited to put the man and the podcast on the other side of this mic. Uh, my friend who is half my age, but for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect, Harry Stebbings, uh, the man who is a teenage phenom and now an investor. I just want to ask you something we ask all our guests coming on, which is what is your core value? It's a very, very good question. It's one that I might steal for my podcast. Uh, I think my core value is actually one that my dearest friend Shaq told me. Um, And Shaq told me that everyone is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Be kind. And I always think about that every day, whether it's to the brister in the coffee shop or whether it's to the CEO that you work with. And I hold that one very, very near and dear to me. So I'd say that's my closest. Be kind. I love it. And I love Shaq, uh, as you know. Uh, I feel bad now that I gave him a hard time many years ago smoking a cigarette outside of a conference. So He's, he gives me a hard time for smoking too, so don't worry. Uh- <laughs> okay, good. Good. So it is my utmost honor and pleasure to introduce Harry Stebbings, a man who needs no introduction. He's the founder of 20VC, one of the largest media assets in venture capital and startups. He also manages the fund 20VC, which has a couple of hundred plus million dollars, 400 million dollars in assets under management. The 20VC podcast reaches 700,000 subscribers, has over 120 million downloads to date. Harry started this podcast without a single contact in venture capital, just with a lot of chutzpah. You know what chutzpah is, right, Harry? Oh, yeah, you live chutzpah. Uh, live chutzpah. A, a, a lot of chutzpah. He's got 2,750-plus episodes, over 1 million, 1.3 million plays per show. Guests have included my former partner and friend Bill Gurley, Howard Marks of Oak Tree, founders of Spotify, PayPal, LinkedIn, Revolut, check out yours truly. And many more, including recently the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, uh, in his residence, no less. How was their podcast studio, Harry? 
Do you know what? It was actually very lovely. It was um, it was quite a palatial room that we did it in. We had a portrait of Maggie Thatcher hanging over us. It was a wonderful setting. I see you're on a first name basis with Maggie Thatcher. Of course. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> at, at 22 years old, Harry was the youngest to make the list of the Forbes Finance 30 Under 30 in Europe. And prior to 20 VC, Harry was a partner at Stride VC, a firm he co-founded in 2018, right after his bar mitzvah. Harry then went on to launch uh, his venture capital fund, 20 VC, in May 2020. He's raised a couple of funds, a $33 million, no, so more funds than that, and most recently launched the sales fund uh, made up of sales executives. And uh, We're going to talk more about that soon. So, Harry, welcome to the show. Sorry for the uh, mumbled and blundered introduction, <laughs> but nobody needs an introduction to you. So um, I want to talk about how I first kind of uh, got to know you and got inspired by you. It was the middle of Corona, I think it was. Uh, and uh, I read about your mom. And so first of all, tell me about your mom, as you call her mom in, in my American English, um, and how that was kind of a motivating, fa motivating factor in your life. It's funny, I think everyone needs a why to be driven to do anything, really. And I think one of the worst things is that we're told you have to do it for yourself. It's complete bullshit. You don't have to do it for yourself. You can do it totally for someone else. There is the post-baby effect that you see in entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are actually scientifically designed or programmed to be more successful post-babies, it's been proven. There is an internal why. And for much of my career, you know, the why's been... My mother, you know, she inspired me so much growing up. I always say she's the light in every room, which sounds quite corny, and it is. But she's amazing. You know, she got MS when I was very young, she's 13, goes through an immense amount of pain and struggle, and she remains the best mother in the world and always there for me and always the rock in my family. And I think it bluntly just gives you this awareness of how truly great people can be um, and how she's never given up and never will give up and always has a smile on her face. And so I learn every day from her, and she drives me to be better, to do more, and to never give up myself. So before I ask you, uh, when do you get the baby so that you can kind of get to the next leg of entrepreneurship, yeah, how does your, your mom tie into starting the podcast? I mean, honestly, I was 18 years old, and I was at home, um, and... You know, I was in love with venture capital. I fell in love with venture when I was 13. I saw Peter Thiel invest in Facebook with Clarion Capital in uh, the social network, which is a scene that everyone else has completely forgotten. But to me, it changed my life forever. And then you'll know these writers, but I went home and I read Brad Feld, Roger Ehrenberg, David Hornick, and I was just captivated by the early writers in venture. And I fell in love with it. I had Howard Moss under the kind of, you know, duvet at boarding school. Uh, no wonder I had no friends. Um, but um, all saying Howard Mars under my duvet sounds a little bit wrong. Howard, if you're <laughs> listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, to my point, I loved it. And, you know, we'll talk about burnout later and why I think it's complete crap. But when I was 18, I had this love of venture so much that I walked to school every day. And on my walk to school, all I ever heard was Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen on podcasts. And I knew there was this slew of amazing, amazing VCs. And I thought, why doesn't anyone interview them? And actually, I believe the best companies, Michael, I think personally, are built on insight developments, a way of seeing the world that is different to how others see it. And I believe that venture would be personalized, that people would choose the partner more than the firm or as much as the firm 
and we deserve transparency in the system. And I believed in the rise of media and content as the core vehicle for this personalization. And so really for me, it was this case of, okay, if these are my two contrarian beliefs at the time in 2015, what medium is perfect for me? And sorry, you can just stop me at any time in the, throughout oh, no, the show. But like everyone comes to me and says, you know what? I want to start a podcast. And I'm like, why? You suck at talking. <laughs> and they go, well, it's, it's, it's what it's about now. Everyone's doing a podcast, right? And you're like, yeah, I repeat, you suck at talking. You have to choose the medium that is right for you. And so for me, I just love talking. I gain the energy from speaking with you now. I love learning about people's stories. That's why I did podcasting. And actually, most people maybe shouldn't do it. They should do short-form video, tweets, long-form writing. But you've got to choose the medium that's right for you. And then to another point of an investing lesson that I've learned, honestly, Michael, I was really lucky. Venture in 2015 was so not cool, but it was just becoming cool. And podcasting in 2015 was so not in, but it was just coming in. I was at two very, very early waves that were about to explode, which goes to one of the most important investing lessons, which is market timing. It doesn't matter where you are in a field. If it's not hot or it's not on the up or it's not big enough, it's not going to work. But it's hard to time markets. It's really hard to time markets which is why I don't generally like to play the market timing game because I'm not smart enough. I want to do something that I know has to, I want to do, you know, international payments. Great. We know this is a business, but I don't want to do something which is inherently based. But take me back to your mom. Like, so at 13, you became interested in venture capital. At 15, you said, oh, this is cool. I'm listening to Mark Andreessen and, and, uh, uh, Peter Thiel. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you start this podcast. Yeah. But why? Still why? Because Not just because you like to talk. Or was it just because you like to talk? No, it was because I wanted a job in venture. Oh, you wanted a job in venture. <laughs> yeah, I wanted a job in venture. And I didn't go to university. I went for a month, but then I dropped out. I hated it. By the way, Did you go to high school when you were there? Or were you just listening to Mark Andreessen? No, I, I mean, so I went to high school. Um, and that's when I actually started the podcast um, in high school. And then when I went to university, I was earning about three grand a month. So 36 grand a year, about $50,000 a year. From the and podcast? I was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, like this is enough money to live on my own in London. That would be a sustainable source of income for me to be okay. And so after a month, I left. Um, I think one of the biggest crimes actually is university. University should be banned, should be made illegal unless you are doing anything like doctorates or, you know, that studies or legal studies. Is there the going to be a Stemmings we, Fellowship like there's a Teal Fellowship? There will be. The fact that we imprison children from 18 to 21, encourage them to get blind drunk every day, uh, and then really just like captivate their minds with bullshit academics that you won't need when you grow up in their most productive years is yeah. literally criminal. I will give children, my cho- I've already said this to my family and my girlfriend, I will give my children 50 grand to go start a business, fail, learn, try. You'll do it for two, three years and you'll come out and get a job and go, I learned these four things when I started a failed business. See, and children won't only be an entrepreneurial bug for you, it's already for them. You've got, you've got them out of, the, out of the cradle and into business. Listen, they should be starting before 18. One of the early, well, you know, I ask this of all founders that I meet, which is like, tell me about how you first made money. Great, great entrepreneurs 
always have a story. You know that if they always have a story of, oh, I was 12 and I was selling something on eBay. I was doing comic books and I was dear, selling them at school, something. And it's, it's completely, everyone's like, oh, you know, it's only for the 1% and you can say that. Bullshit. Socioeconomically uh, uncorrelated. Um, and you can very 99% of the best have those early signs. I worked at a cheese and fish store for what it's worth. I guess well, if, you're t- if your talent was talking, mine was tolerating bad smells. <laughs> I mean, there we go. This is the sign of true excellence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're good at talking. You started a podcast and you wanted a job in venture capital and your mom was the shining light uh, in your life that caused you to do this. And you were bored sleeping with Howard Marks in, in high school. That's the summary of your career till Pretty. about age 18. Pretty much. Ray okay. Dalio was busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I want to dive right into a bunch of questions we got from people. So in preparation for this episode, I did what you do, right? Twitter, work your magic. And I put out a short video on social media asking people what I should ask you when we put you on the other side of the mic. Uh, you retweeted it and wrote, I do not ever do interviews, but when Mike asked, I had to say yes. What do you want me to hear to discuss? Preference for personal life, drinking, happiness, depression, media, AMA, but AMA, go. You said you're super happy before we came on air. You said you stopped drinking. Why were you drinking in the first place? Um, I mean, I, the UK has a very normal, like abnormal, I think, relationship to drinking, where it's like kind of just so ingrained in our society from a very early age. Um, and, you know, I... I, I had a problem with drinking, Michael, if I'm honest. I, I find that not enough people actually say it. They'll bullshit and say, oh, it was health, it was calories. And the only way we're going to get a generation of people to accept it and actually say it's okay, and that's fine, and you can change and be better, is by having people speak up and say it. And listen, I had a problem with drinking. I was drinking too much, and I was drinking every day. And, you know, especially in our jobs, you drink every night because you have dinners, drinks, of entrepreneur events, VC events. And it just became a really negative habit in my life. And actually, it was just beginning to be a really bad influence in my life. And so I stopped drinking. And it was probably the single most meaningful thing that's ever happened to my life. How'd you do that? How'd you stop? Oh, I can stop doing anything. I am probably the most strong-willed person in the world, which is not an arrogance. It is a, I will, to the point of like bad, like... I will run when I'm injured. I will lift weights when I shouldn't lift weights. Like nothing will stop me to the point when it's sometimes unwise. But when I say I'm going to do something, or I'm not going to do something, nothing will stop me. And so for me, it was just a very simple, I stopped drinking. I use an app called I Am Sober. You press start and then you see the time that you're sober. Uh, trust me, there is nothing like looking at that with now, whatever it is, 300 days. When you think that you want to drink, which I never do, but if you ever do, when you see that and you have to restart, that sucks. Also, the biggest problem that people have with habits, Michael, is they always think about the reward, not the action, okay? And so they always think, oh, I'm going to feel great when I have that drink. And actually, it's not about that. It's about like the after effect. And so there's the action, sorry, and then there's the after effect. And they go, great, I want the action. I want the alcohol. I want the espresso martini. The after effect is... 200 400 calories in a hangover no one thinks about that it's the same with good things like every morning i will never miss my alarm everyone thinks about the action oh i can sleep in 
But the after effect is, and I'm 20 minutes late for work. Think about the after effect, not the action, and it'll change pretty much everything about the way that you do often very negative things. And so whenever As you're talking have- about that, I'm thinking about zero interest rates. <laughs> and, and, the, and the hangover uh, from yeah. that. So, so how, how did you develop this kind of indomitable determination to kind of be able to do anything? Where'd that come from? I was very fat when I was younger. Um, and I think we also... Um, I like, would never guess that. And we're too nice. Like we're, we're far too... And I'm probably going to get cancelled for this show. But we're too nice. Everyone's like, oh, you can't say fat. You should have to say round or well, well-sized. No, I was fat. I ate KFC family buckets and I was fat. Like, it's okay. Um, but I was very fat and I lost a huge amount of weight very quickly. Um, and bluntly, it showed me that if I put my mind to it, I, I could achieve it. I could do anything. And I think we all like to tell ourselves that actually it's okay. And no one knows what they're doing. And like, we all look for the comfort. It, 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 that's not okay. Like you should be uncomfortable. Like today, I like seek discomfort. I I just finished a run, which is probably why I'm sweating. <laughs> it was a really uncomfortable run. It was really hot in London, but only through going through that discomfort do I sit with you now, and I'm absolutely fucking pumped. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it's not just because of me. It's because of your run. It's not just because of you, oh, okay. sadly. Um, oh damn! Uh, Ray Dalio is giving me a tickle under the table. <laughs> But, like, you've got to go through that. And so that's where, honestly, I think the seed of it was, where I saw that I lost. I went from 125 kilos to 75 kilos in five months. Whoa. And so I, yeah, 50 kilos in five months. Everyone's going to go, oh, it's so bad for you to do that. It's so bad for you to do that. You know what I say to all those people on Twitter? I don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um, and, Harry, and just so, say, oh, this is a totally safe space for political incorrectness. It's all good. We're the same on this. But that leads me to a question, by the way, which is, so here comes this 18-year-old kid. He launches a podcast. It's the most popular thing uh, in venture capital and entrepreneurial journalism, if that's the right word, or media uh, for today. Um, the, the the mainstream media has kind of not exactly having a romance with, with tech and venture capital uh, these days. How, how do you think about what you're doing versus where mainstream media is at today, in particular as regards tech. I mean, I honestly, I think uh, journalism sucks. If we're totally honest, Michael, we, we started this conversation. Well, we all read it. They don't really know what they're talking about. They write kind of bombastic articles that are there for clickbait. They're not very well researched on the whole. Some are, there's always nuance. 3% are, and they're great. Um, you know, but the majority is not. Uh, they have a business. Business models drive incentives. You have to understand the incentive mechanism, and they will take a snippet, put it as the headline because it drives clicks, and they will ignore most of the good things you say because it doesn't drive clicks, and that is their business model. And so, I think most of, honestly, the quality of journalism say sucks. Um, I think most of the journalists want to be VCs. I think they're all overworked. Um, they are all overworked, which I feel really bad about. Like they don't have time to do a lot of the research, which is really tough on them because a lot of them are good writers. Um, a lot of them are given stories they don't want to write about. Um, uh, let's not get on to PR firms because they are terrible and 99% are useless. 
Um, I'm really making friends here, aren't I? <laughs> it's good. There's good clickbait for this podcast. You know what I'm saying? Oh, thank you so much. There we go. Welcome to modern media. But, but um, you know, you said that they're overworked, the journalists. Um, you work pretty hard yourself. I mean, you and I have had dinner in London. It's pretty late at night, and you will go back to work after that sometimes. Mm. Uh, somebody wrote Sometimes. Me, sometimes. Every time. Okay. Like, people so, need to know the work, though, that goes in because, like, you don't get there without the brutal grinding work. I get so many McKinsey grads people saying to me i'm going to start the 19 minute vc the 18 minute vc and i'm just like good luck let me help you like i really wish you well because you will have to give eight years of your life your health everything to this to make it what it is in a market that's harder than i did it in but so one, let one me of our you. one of our mutual friends and investor I'm, I'm not sure she's an investor with you Catherine remain said is harry gonna burn out oh I love Catherine. So period. Love Catherine. But the the topic of burnout is just absolutely for me. And again, a lot of people take everything as like, oh, he's, this is for me. So for anyone who's like upset, emotional about me saying this, it's just for me. Okay. <laughs> but burnout for me is when I'm doing something I don't love and it's crushing my soul, which was when I had a job, which was admittedly many years ago. But I love what I do. Like, Michael, this is my job. I'm about to interview an amazing, amazing founder later today. Who's that? Uh, uh, one of the founders of Plaid. Um, oh. And, like, that's awesome. I, that's my job, too. Uh, I have a board meeting later today with an amazing company. Am I going to burn out? Oh, Christ. I've got, you know, an iced coffee brought to me by an EA in a beautiful office. <laughs> My grandfather shovels gravel on a golf course for $12 an hour, okay? And we talk about burnout. I think this is like a luxury in, in, in my space for me to be talking about burnout. I, I, I love what I do. I work with amazing people, and I'm more energized than ever. So for me, I don't worry about burnout. I think it's a real thing, and it happens to people. But I think if you really love what you do, it's hard to do burnout, if so, I'm honest. Uh, our mutual friend Shaq said, I should ask you, um, what did you learn from the markets in 2021, 22, and 23? So you know, there's a lot of people who got excited. And you know, this is like my third or fourth cycle. And uh, I saw a lot of people in 98, 99 be super energized. And then again, you know, in 05, 06, and then, you know, through the, through the teens, and they were super energized and they were working really hard and, you know, everything was great. And everyone was a genius, which is, by the way, the totality of your career so far. What, what, are, what have the new learnings been like for you? Uh, has it impacted your energy at all? And, um, you know, I'll ask the follow-up question afterwards. <laughs> Good. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's been a huge amount of learnings. Um, it's, has it impacted my energy? Not at all. Um, Let's go through the lessons. And I, again, I find people aren't, I do what you're doing now often, and people don't, the best interviews are made up of art and science, okay? The art is where you talk about the story, resonates with people, you bring people in, and then the science is what you learned, the thematic, the tactical. And so let's, let's do this. Let's do the science and the art of what I learned. Number one, uh, I learned that a company is more than a piece of paper with numbers on it. And what do I mean by that? I made an investment in Pakistan, airlift, quite well documented, very poorly documented in terms of 
like the amount of money that I put into it and kind of my name and attribution to it. But again, we will leave journalism to journalism. Um, and so I made an investment in airlift in Pakistan. The numbers look great. Everything looked great. The CACs were fine. The LTVs were great. The unit economics and the business on paper was very attractive. Now, in the real world, it was in a country with political risk, with currency risk, uh, with weather risk. And I didn't factor in the very many negative externalities that can really damage a business. And actually, the idea that a great founder can make any business happen is complete rubbish. You cannot have a great founder in a market which can get crushed by corruption, politics, weather. No matter how good you are as a founder, it, that those things can crush you. And so I just learned that bluntly, you have to really be quite holistic in how you understand and evaluate businesses. And I say this to my girlfriend today, you know, I said, she said, how do you know what founders to invest in? And I say, ah, you're Australian. So let me help you here. You need a great surfer, but that's not enough. You need also a really great beach with fantastic waves, but that's still not enough. If you go in the middle of the night, you're not going to do much surfing. So you need the right beach, the right surfer, and the right time of day for that beach to really go surfing. And I think this was a real articulation of that because I don't think I quite looked at it holistically and I was too focused on singular strengths within the business. Did you meet the founder in person? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Did you go to Pakistan? No, he came here. Interesting. <laughs> uh, but but I, I stand by where you're going 100% on that. I think the return of in-person is crucial. People hate me for this too. Um, I think really you need to meet the founders in person as well. You gain so much from that tangibility-wise. Um, and so I, I totally get where you're going with that. I think another one, honestly, is like portfolio management. Um, Liquidity-wise, you know, there were positions that I should have sold, and I didn't. And I think we were trained, I, and I'm bluntly not blaming the younger generation of investors, we were trained, hold on to your witness. This is what the best told us. And we listened. And we did. And bluntly, there are three or four where I should have been much more proactive in selling. And I should have been much more strategic about that. And I wasn't. You know, by um, the way, you hold on to your winners is a good strategy if you actually know which the long-term winners are. The problem is, is that there's survivorship bias to it. And so you actually don't know. Most people don't know in moment that it was going to be a winner. If you think about Amazon this, in 2001, I lived through that. But this is fundamentally why I don't like reserves. Reserves, I think, are actually uh, financially irresponsible in a lot of cases. And you're going to go, whoa, whoa, Harry, you're going for this one. Uh, I'm going clear, for, for people listening, what reserves are is venture capitalists invest some money up front and they keep money to invest in the company uh, as it matures or gets into trouble or whatever happens. Yeah, absolutely. And so why do I think that it is often unwise? Because most often reserve allocation is aligned to trajectory to trajectory and to speed of growth within companies. Oh, X company has hit an inflection point. Y company's got adoption. We want to put more money in. We want to put more money in. Consistently across the board in venture, if people were to have done that, they would have put their money in kind of the fastest growers, which most often, if you look at the data, is not the sustainable growers. If, if you looked at my portfolio, that would definitely be the case. Um, 
and it would have been financially unwise, which is why I'm thrilled that I had a no reserve strategy. Actually, when you look at most portfolios, the best performing companies often are the kind of mid performers in the early days, the ones that took a little bit of time and then found something. The ones that just went straight out of the gate often hit snags like actually later on and the trajectory tails off. Um, and so for me, I, I personally feel that it's too difficult to know which of your companies within the first 18 months you should really concentrate capital into. Um, and so I, I, I do take that approach on but, reserves. But it's now and- 2023 and the market's down and liquidity's dried up and growth capital is disappeared in many cases, not fully, um, but but it's gone. And so I'm sure when you got started in this business as a venture capitalist, you just assumed that the later rounds were there. Yeah. Uh, now they're not. What what has that taught you? Well, the later rounds aren't that. Yeah, or and maybe has it taught you anything about investment pace? Uh, no, no. Um, I, I'm on a I'm forty percent deployed, two years into my fund cycle. Um, will be a three to three and a half year deployment pace. Amazing. All of my LPs are going. Harry, we expected you to be the fastest. Um, uh, well done. But you. Know, Thank you. Um, and so, no, I've, I've always been a big fan of temporal diversification, which for people listening is essentially that there are benefits to investing kind of over time across cycles because you'll get kind of a blended exposure over time. Um, and so I've always very much believed in that. And so I was always very wary of that. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's honestly true, Michael, I don't live the same life as a lot of other VCs. I'm not predicated on fees. Like This is the other thing that we don't talk about in this industry, which is that a lot of funds are predicated on fees. And funds are a business as well. Um, I have a business of media, which makes me more money than funds. I'm not here to raise funds fast and stack fees. That's not my game. Also, you want to talk about finding happiness. You know what? <laughs> when I was 21... I'm super honest. I have no idea why I'm being so honest with you, Michael. You're bringing out my honesty. But like, I sat on my balcony when I was 21, and I looked at my bank, and I had a million pounds in there. And I used to watch I'm a Celebrity Who Wants... Not I'm a Celebrity, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And that was like happiness when you're a millionaire. And I had never been as unhappy. I had no friends. I was drinking a lot. I was quite unhealthy. Uh, I didn't actually have that much of a great relationship with my family. And my mother, sure, but not my brother or anyone else. Um, and I was less happy than ever. And I think this is the biggest problem with people. It's like they don't actually know themselves. And it's like, you know, what makes me happy, Michael? My Sunday walks with my mum, spending time with my family, going to a spin class, things that cost $20, $30 at max. And actually, that's what makes me happy. I think people don't know who they are. And I think they don't know what they want, like what they actually want. And when you actually know those two, it just changes a lot about how you think about life for me. What turned it around there at 21? So there you were drinking, there you were not happy, but you know your podcast was succeeding and you were financial. What turned it around? Nothing. I continued drinking. Uh, <laughs> I continued making more money. Um, and I, I didn't realize... It took a long time. So when actually. did you? When did I realize it wasn't okay? I think on the drinking there were bad times. You know, there are times when you wake up and you just feel like absolute shit. Um, and when that happens time and time again, 
it's the most crazy thing. You know, you will feel like crap time and time and again. You'll get up and do it again. It makes no sense. Um, and so I think that, I think, you know, honestly, I turned 25. And I, I believe that everyone is capable of really achieving greatness. I think most people like want to tell themselves that mediocrity is fine, if we're honest. But I think everyone's capable of achieving greatness. And I thought, if I'm 50, and every year I lose 20% of my productivity because of alcohol, 20%, it's not actually a huge amount, but it's very significant, actually, stat. Over 25 years compounded, that's the difference between good and really, really great. And I'm terrified of thinking at the end of my career I could have been so much more. And I'm not more because of alcohol, because of the nights out, seriously. And actually, I really want to be a good father and a good parent. And, you know, I'm not going to be that and I'm not going to be fresh to play with them in the park because I had a nice out before with it at a dinner. Is that really who I am? That doesn't sound like someone I want to be. And also reliable, you know, someone, I asked someone recently, what do you want on your tombstone? And they said, I'd like reliable. And I thought, oh, fuck, that's boring. Um, and they said, no, being reliable is probably one of the greatest compliments you can be. What do you, you want are, on your tombstone? What do I want on my tombstone? Knackered. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in real um, peace. <laughs> I I think honestly, like content. Like if you you'll are never content, be content. No, but if I'm dead, then hopefully I will be. <laughs> but also, you should never be content, right? You should you should be appreciative of what you have. I'm very appreciative of what I have. I love it on Sundays knowing that I've got a week ahead of me that I love doing what I'm doing, but I'm never content. Did that, million pounds, always... did that million pounds in your bank account when you were 21 on the porch change you in any way? No. <laughs> like, this is the other thing, like, Michael. Like, I don't, What'd you do I with don't... the money? Keep it. I don't want front. I'm, I don't wear watches. I, don't, I, I, I legally can't drive. <laughs> I have zero interest in fashion. I don't like furniture. I don't like cars. I, I like venture capital and startups. <laughs> so which is why I find it so funny that people who focus on the money don't make the money. It's, there's inputs and there's outputs. Money for me is the output and the input is doing the work that I love. By the way, there's a lot easier ways to make money than to be a startup entrepreneur or a venture capitalist for that money for smart and ambitious people. It requires a certain amount of, for founders in particular, a certain amount of kind of, you know, craziness, a crazy gene in there that you got to get after this and, and be on it. And so this is the worst way to make money for sure in, <laughs> in terms of like, if you want to wait very, very long times. Um, but I also, Michael, I think it's important to say, I did about 125 shows before we made a dollar on 20 VC. Two years of shows. How'd you pay for it? I mean, it was $50. <laughs> Love it was dirt cheap. Like, you know, I had, I had a laptop from school, uh, which, you know, 15-year-olds have. Um, I had a bedroom. Um, and I used, you know, all the free tools on the internet. This is the beautiful thing about the internet when you think about it. A kid from London cold emails Guy Kawasaki <laughs> and gets him to come on a podcast that doesn't exist. 
and that makes now millions of pounds from like fifty dollars. Was Guy your and first guest? Yeah, that's amazing. I love Guy. I haven't seen him in a bunch of years, but he, you know, he was a legend. In, yeah, you know, in in the late nineties, yeah. early two thousands, and and so, but I think it's important to know that, like, you know, it takes time. This is the biggest reason why people fail with content, though, which is bluntly they give up too soon. There's many reasons why they fail. They give up too soon. You just, it's a game of who can survive the longest. Jason Calacanis taught me that early, actually, to be fair. Credit to him. He taught me it's just a game of who can survive the longest. Just keep going. Kind of Jason's amazing. I just ran into Jason in Abu Dhabi, and uh, we were reminiscing about his time at Silicon Alley. Reporter, which nobody remembers anymore. So, you know, the, the media outlet Silicon Alley Reporter is not around, but Jason Calacanis is killing it on All In. Uh, yeah, podcast, and so and 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 it's just about surviving the longest. Yeah, and the other thing that people make terrible mistakes on with content, they try and go so broad. I have so many people like, oh, we're doing stories of entrepreneurship, and it's like where you inject yourself in the market timing of a cycle changes a lot about the content types that you do. Like we are coming in at a much more mature stage of content than five to eight years ago, so you have to be incredibly specific. You want to do. Israel or Jerusalem-based SaaS founders. That is your starting point. And you want to own that tiny market. And then you want to do Jerusalem and Tel Aviv-based SaaS founders. And then you want to do the region of SaaS founders. But a really important lesson that I always think to, you have to earn the right to do the next thing. And I think too many people don't think about kind of step functions of expansion but you have to find product market fit with that of first 100 users. I think it's very much the same with founders today. Like, just find the first 100 users. And I, you know, I cold DM'd on Twitter, like, the, every single person who followed me up until 40,000 followers. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So I want to just go back to Shaq's question for a second to, to switch. If you could turn the clock back to, you know, the fall of 2021, which is, by the way, when Gurley and I came on your podcast in November and talked about the impending downturn. Uh, other than kind of selling some secondary uh, in your portfolio at the top of the market, what else would you have done differently? Um, I would have sold the secondary one. I would have been much more... I wouldn't have done Pakistan. I wouldn't have done emerging markets. You're not smarter than the market. Um, again, I'm going to get hate for this. Emerging markets are really hard. Uh, they're really, really hard. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, the growth of Pakistan, the growth of North Africa. Where's the liquidity coming from, Michael? It's going to go on the NASDAQ, is it? I don't think so. Don't think so. Everyone points to Newbank. Newbank is a phenomenal company. David Velez is exceptional. Exceptional. Like once in a generation founder. But they're very, very rare. Very rare. And so I'm just like, I, th- I would have been much more cognizant of that. Um, I don't think there's more on the market, bluntly. Like, did we pay too high a price? Yes, we all did. Um, do, do I kind of blame any of us for that? You gotta play the game the, on the field, as Gurley says, right? So yeah, no, I blame the growth investors for doing twelve hundred x ARR for some of my companies, but also let's not throw shade. When they were doing it, I was welcoming them. Yes, yeah, we sure. were going back, and so I, I don't think I think it's easy to throw stones in those cases. I think it's quite 
humorous that like I will never not be more active on portfolio management than in the future, having learned what I've learned. I will absolutely take the lessons from Pakistan and from Airlift. What I find entertaining is the fact that there's a generation of investors who went through 08, who went through the dot-com and still fell for this. Yeah, I don't know what you mean by fell for this. What does it mean to fall for it? Who succumbed to 1,200x ARR prices, who succumbed to 12-month deployment cycles, who succumbed to crazy emerging markets investing at the same price as U.S. investing, when they'd seen it before. So just a side question before I get on to the the main question I want to ask about this. So London or the UK, is that an emerging market for venture or is it a (laughs) well-established ecosystem? (laughs) I mean, well, for venture... You're laughing nervously, Harry. I'm I'm laughing because I'm thinking (laughs) London is an emerging market. I'm like, (laughs) this is an emerging market. (laughs) Wow. Um... No, London is not an emerging okay. market. London is London is an amazing, amazing place to build a business. We, I think we have actually very poor levels of venture, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, I think there are very, very few seed funds, Series A funds, or growth funds that are any good. Um, fuck it. Should we just burn the bridges of venture in Europe? <laughs> <laughs> like the great seed funds in Europe, point nine, number one. Visionaries number two, they're rising and they're the competitor to point nine. Okay. And, and what about you? Listen, I, I I will always promote others and people can make their own mind up. Is is, uh, is 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 by the way, is early stage the best place for you to invest? Catherine Main asked me this question, or should you be kind of a later stage investor? Um I, I don't categorize myself as an early stage or a late stage or a SaaS investor. My job is to uh, and I don't know how you feel about how you categorize yourself, but like, my job is to make bluntly, you know, great investments in category defining founders and make a huge amount of money from our investors. Yeah. It's that simple. Um, and so I don't like to box myself into, uh, like, what does early stage mean? Is it pre series A and B early stage? If you're a post I, post IPO, then series D is early stage. So I'm just like, my job is to partner with the best founders in the world and make them pick me. I don't even think I'm an investor, Michael. I think I'm a founder. My job is to create products that the best founders in the world want to take. Expand on Funny that. Sales is a great example yeah. of that. Tell us. And so the media is another great example of that. We have an incredible data team and data product that is another example of that. We by far could do the best fund of funds in the world. We have 30,000 references on 3,000 GPs from 10 founders each that they sit on a board with, we have 2,800 track records. But by far the most comprehensive data on this generation of venture investors. You know, I'm creating products because I need to win the best founders. And my customers are just founders. It's that simple. And so I don't really like the whole like, oh, are you an earlier growth? Where you sit in the stack? My job is to build products for my customers and my customers are founders. You know, that's it. When, when we started Aleph, uh, Eden and I, so he said, Hey, I just want to make sure we're really an equal partnership. I said, what's that? He says, I want to spend a lot of money on a data platform. And this is by the way, 2012 or 13. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, I've got this spreadsheet of angel investors and of references and of founders and of connections. And I, and I want to instrument the whole thing and hire developers and product managers, uh, 
into Olive. What do you think about that? I said, well, it's an equal partnership. You get to make that, you get to make that decision. We have the system now called Amplify, which has millions and millions and millions of connections. By the way, we do the same thing. We have automated reference checking on engineers and marketing people and investors. And by the way, I get a list of, hey, so-and-so uh, wants to get in touch with this investor, t- email automatically teed up because it's already kind of been pre-processed by our system and kind of we know what they're looking for and what they're not looking for. Uh, and we've built, it's a massive network and it's a killer competitive advantage. And I, by the way, I, as the old guy, I, you know, I'm responsible for none of it. It's my partner, Aiden, it is. But I, I look at young people like you and Aiden, who's older than you, and say, Wow, what made you th- certain that that was worth the investment? Oh, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. This is the other thing. We, Same, we, always, like, we always buy a track and we say, I knew this. I didn't know this. I didn't know most of the shit. I will probably sound really arrogant in this show. Most of this stuff you figure out along the way. And I think that's the number one thing that I find so funny with a lot of early stage investors when they're like, oh, I don't find the defensibility. It's like, no, no one has any defensibility on day one. It's built over time with process, with reference, with customers, team members, with portfolios. And so for me, it was basically a data acquisition interest that then turns into a data product, that then turns into a platform. And strength compounds over time you get stronger by doing the reps and by going back to the gym and it's what i saw here which is like it just compounds over time and it gets better and better and better um and the show is actually an amazing data acquisition strategy i think when i heard you talk about the data platform there the thing that i actually think when i heard that was something that hunter walk and satya patel told me which is partnerships are often most successful when both of you are rich already and i don't mean to talk about your personal wells but you're not resting on the fees to pay rent which actually makes the decisions that you make a lot higher quality and purer because you make them in isolation without personal need coming into it it's for the best of the firm and i thought that was a really interesting lesson that hunter and satya took from their building of homebrew and it made me think of that when I heard you say about the investment in the data team, which naturally takes away from your fees. Tell me, like, how did you get up the gumption to reach out to Guy Kawasaki? And who are the other uh, early, you know, uh, I mean, guests I mean, on, your, on your, I guess, podcast or show or kitchen uh, or bedroom? I think, I think this is like, you know, the other funny thing, which is like, you know, people say this to me a lot. which is like, oh, my gosh, weren't you nervous? No, I was really nervous to speak to friends my own age. Like a disco, terrifying. I still find terrifying. Like I was the one in the corner. I don't know how to dance, Michael. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm deaf in one ear. Um, <laughs> it's just awkward. But as being to a CEO of a massive business, no, it's not very nerve wracking because we share a passion. Because I love what you do, and I'm really interested to hear your answer. But how about speaking to the Prime Minister of the UK? No, it wasn't. Like, I don't mean to know. Like, no, I, I'm really passionate about the UK and about European tech. Why would I be nervous? Like, Bill Ackerman? No. Like, it, it, I, I didn't get nervous. I mean, I, I, w- I was nervous when Howard Marks told me. I mean, it was my well, next question, Howard Marks. Yeah, when Howard Marks told me, well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> Suddenly, I was struck with a little bit of nerve. 
And then Bill came in and saved the day and was like, okay, well, I mean, let's just, let's just calm down, Howard. Uh, which is very kind um, of Bill. But like, no, so I, I don't get nervous here because I think, honestly, I do the work. I really do the work. We prep intensely before each show. So we're ready when we step on the field, one. And then two, I'm passionate to listen. I want to learn. Every show that we do, by the way, I only release 70% of shows we do. 30% don't go out. So How if pissed I don't are those le- people? Not too pissed. Um, and they're not pissed because we have a full-time TED coach on staff, like former TED speaker coach on staff, who analyzes the transcripts. And then we'll say, Michael, in your intro, it wasn't as cohesive as it could be. If you did one, two, and three, you could tie it together a lot more succinctly. And they'll coach you on your speaking style. And so we try and give quite a lot back as a thank you. And actually, if it's not a good representation of you, then it's not the best version to put yourself in the world and present yourself. But like, you, I need to learn three to five things per show still today for it to go out. And so, the, you know, this is the other thing. Like, you know, Gustav Soderstrom at Spotify, the CPO at Spotify says one of the best quotes he says, details are not details. Details are the product. And I am passionate about delivering the best product every single time. And if it's not like the best product, it's not going out. Just like product designers don't ship not good products, I'm not going to ship a mediocre podcast. You know, I didn't ask your founders what they think of you before the show, and none of them seemed to DM me, unlike many other people who did. Uh, if I asked your founders what they think of you as an investor or a board member, what would they tell me? What would be the feedback? I think that's say connected, if we're honest. Um, I think, I don't believe venture investors are generally very well positioned to help founders. <laughs> like, I just don't. Um, I think that the best people to help founders are people in the trenches who are operating in real time and are facing those problems right now. If you are hiring a developer relations lead it is not right to speak to your ambassador about it honestly it is probably right to speak to the best technical recruiter at slack at mongodb who's having that exact challenge who'll help you write that job description who'll help you get that diverse candidate pipeline like that is where real value lies is there going to so be my- a five million dollar developer relations venture capital fund from 20 vc soon <laughs> You know, it might be a little bit niche, uh, <laughs> but, but you never rule it out, Michael. Uh, <laughs> but like, it is not like the venture investor who will be able to deliver that value. And people also forget the decay in operating experience. People are like, oh, well, X was an operator. He was an operator or she was an operator in 2012. This was kind of at the birth of kind of cloud in the very early days of cloud. This was pre-COVID, when work from home, hybrid, and millennials weren't a nightmare. (laughs) Um, The world has changed so much. The rate of decay on operating experiences has never been greater. Yeah, I agree with that. And so actually, you need people in the trenches who can deliver that value. So my job is to be the best switchboard in the world to deliver real value to my entrepreneurs and to the founders that we work with. Why did we do 20 product, 20 growth, 20 sales? Because now we have a hundred of the best operators in the world 
on WhatsApp, ready to go, who we have great relationships with. We've delivered value to them already. So, so take 20 VCs money because you'll have access to the greatest network in the world. So it's not just money. It's money and access. That's what you're offering. I would, I, 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 would, I would say more. It's money, access in real time to the best people. Like a lot of people like access, access and knowledge. And what I mean by that is like, there's access, which is I want to speak to X and they're able to connect you. We're a little bit, I think, more intelligent than that, which is like, hey, this is my problem. Help me solve it. And then knowing the exact right person at the exact right company at the right time and then being able to connect them within a day. That, I think, is, is very, very powerful and unique, um, especially from Europe to the US. More in the US, you, you have firms that do that. And then I think also content. Yeah, every company's question today is how do I scale customer acquisition in an economically efficient way? Every firm is becoming a media and a content firm as well. Yep. And knowing how to do it, it takes years and years and years. You know, on, on that spent- front, does it bother you that so many people out there uh, in the media, but when I, I guess I'm asking a psychological question almost. Um, I think this came from Shaq too, by the way. Does it bother you that that people kind of still consider you this like teenage podcaster? Um, does it bother you? Does, yeah, I love you do it. Anything different? You love it. I, Why do you I, lo- I love it? Keep thinking I'm a podcaster. Um, keep Gives thinking. Why? Another why besides mom? Michael, I was a fat kid at school who was always told that <laughs> that'd be the one, you know, that's single forever and without friends, and. I was told that I was like the B student, not the A student. I was told that whatever, whatever, whatever. And you know what? I spent my life being underestimated. Being underestimated is one of the best superpowers in the world. Keep on thinking I'm a podcaster. And I'll keep on writing $75 million series B checks and leading the round for Triple Dot like we did. And so, you know what? It's okay. I, I, I don't mind what, and this takes time. I think I did a lot before. Shaq taught me so much about actually, you know, I remember once I wasn't on the list for like, I don't know, some tech crunch list. And I wrote some snarky response to a tweet. And Shaq was like, seriously, seriously, you know what? Different game, Harry, different game. You have to change game. What you did now to get here isn't what's going to get you to the next level. I don't, I don't mind what people think. I know what I'm doing. I'm operating against my plan. The plan is going exceptionally well and better than plan. And so if people think I'm a podcaster and they don't see it coming, fantastic. Do, that do helps me. The, do you make all the investing decisions? I have a pre-seed partner, Kieran, who I work with on pre-seed, but across the firm, yes. How do you stay humble? <laughs> um, I have a mother that kicks the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not your girlfriend, it's your mother. Yeah, yeah, no, girlfriend doesn't. His mother does. Um, no, um, honestly, what is success, Michael? Like, I'm not successful, okay? Um, success- I know, but wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. How many emails do you get a week from people who want to go on your podcast? 200. 200. 200. How many people come over and say, I want to be... Or I can be maybe the next Harry Stebbings, and at twenty six, I'll have the most popular VC podcast, uh, my own venture fund, solo GP. 
Lots, right? But is that a success? Uh, okay. I'm, I'm happy no, it's, it's, it's just, uh, this, is, this is something that I just think more and more about, which is like, you know, my, my uh, you know, I, someone very close to me um, earns whatever, 30, 40 grand a year, but, um, you know, which is absolutely fine, not, it, but it's much less. Um, an average salary in the UK. And every day they go and hang out with some friends at the end of the day. And then they go back to their wife. And on the weekends, they play sport with their friends. And they go to the cinema. And they seem very happy. And I just think that we wrongly categorize success as a number in HSBC. And it's it's just not that. And actually, in many ways, that person is much more successful than me. You know, me with psoriasis, you know, alcoholism and heart palpitations, sitting at my desk at 1 a.m. cranking. Yeah, that looks like... Wait, wait, is success and happiness the same thing? It's a good question. Can you be unsuccessful and happy? (laughs) Yes, you can. So they're not the same. So how would you define success? I think it, for me, it's nuanced. Like for some people that, and this is the other thing that's terrible is like, you know, we tell people that you, you shouldn't do it for money. If you do it for money and that's your why, I think that's fine. Um, and for some people, success is the money. Um, for me, it's not. It's loving what I do and never feeling imprisoned or feeling free, you know. Technically, now I can do. You know, you control your day. I control my day. Now, really, we do and we don't. <laughs> it's a little bit constrained, but technically, we don't have a boss to do that. That for me is a huge luxury and it's success in many ways. For other people, it's not. So I think it's really dependent on the person. Um, but I think you know, yeah, I think it's very dependent on the person. But I think you can be successful and you know unhappy as well. How do you know if you're going to be a successful venture capitalist or if you are a successful venture capitalist? I mean, you've been through a massive bull market run. There's been a downturn now. Like, how do you know if you're if you're good at this even? I don't think you do. <laughs> uh, I do think it think takes many. I, I, I don't think it takes 10 years to know if you're good at this. Everyone's like, oh, it's 10 years. It's, that's not true. You can look at um, and be, it's not follow on funding. That would be a skewed metric. Let's take a look at how many companies within your portfolio are doing sustainably 10 million in ARR or above within a certain amount of time frame. Let's look at the quality of revenue, the quality of margins, the quality of customers within portfolio companies. You can quickly tell within a three to five year period whether you have decent enough access and picking to be a good investor. When you think about Venture Stay, Michael, and I'm so funny that I'm telling you, someone who I respect the shit out of as a venture investor and learn from daily this is ironic for me but for people listening um you know there's three pillars for me of successful venture investing there's sourcing finding the best companies and founders in the world there's selecting which is picking those best founders and then there's helping which is ensuring they have all they can be as successful as possible i create products for those three um how do you know whether you're successful I think, honestly, you take what I said before and you can tell early signs within those first three to five years. But cash is king. And there's a lot of... The reason I don't do podcasts, and I've probably sounded very arrogant in this podcast, but the reason I never do podcasts 
is because I have not returned cash. And there's a lot of young people today who like to chat a lot of shit. And actually their LPs are still waiting for dollars back. And you know what? I'm just very wary of that, which is why I do this with you. But generally, I think we should do more work and less talk. That's super authentic. Uh, Noah Tradonsky asked, who haven't you interviewed that you really want to interview? <laughs> I mean, I was doing about this with a very dear friend the other day. Um, there's a couple of people I would love to. In I mean, my n number one is like Bernard Arnault. Bernard Arnault is like my all time hero. He will never do it. So we can just safely move on from that one. Um, one, uh, two, I would love, love, love to have Peter Thiel on the show. This is, you know, the man who inspired my first love of venture. Um, before it's been challenging because he had involvement in politics. And so we shall try again. Um, and we, like, I will email people 50 times. I'm on my 52nd email to Satya at, at the Microsoft. Microsoft. Um, and I will keep going. Persistence is everything, everything. Well, you should just uh, turn up at his door with your podcast equipment in Redmond. That would be cool. I'm tempted to. <laughs> you could also create, you know, this is the other thing, which is like people view a piece of content in isolation, which is so silly. So we record this podcast today. This podcast is not a podcast. This podcast is a YouTube video. This is a series of YouTube shorts. This is 20 Instagram reels. This is, uh, you know, TikToks. We've spoken before about this. There's at least 15 TikToks going here. We've got at least five Twitter threads going through this. We've got a Medium blog post. Every piece of content is 10 other pieces of content. Um, I think it's something we've done very well at the, from the beginning. And so to your question, yeah, we should do that on Satya. And then we should document it. And the story of getting Satya on 20VC, the travel, the standing outside the Microsoft office, the TikToks of our team ready and waiting with lights. That is how you tell a story. You have to engage people. Um, and so I would I love think, to be a fly on the wall of Redmond for that one. Yeah, but this is my problem also, Michael, which is like, we've lost creativity. We've lost so much. I, agree. I want the batshit crazy ideas of shall we paint our office black with 20 VC logos all over it? Seriously. We have so how about this? When you get to Tel Aviv, you and I are doing walking podcast on the beach of Tel Aviv. Interviewing random founders. When love you come it. here in the fall. Love it, but wait, well, let's go further. Wait, what more can we like? I, I always ask myself, I'm in the water. Hours. What do you want? Maybe. Uh, Ray Dalio, just being our bit cameraman. Ray's like the wailing wall. Like, 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 but like everyone, everyone always goes like, "Oh, what a stupid thing to ask." But it's a very good one to push your mental thinking, which is if Mr. Beast were running Aleph today. What would he do differently? Just ask yourself that and get away. We literally have an offsite on that next week. Yeah. And it will make you think, you know, he would probably give $10,000 to 10 entrepreneurs and then film them for the next week and see which ones go the furthest. Well, actually, $100,000 for a venture firm is nothing. It could be the first preeminent steps in how to do customer discovery, how to do product testing. It could be an amazing series. Michael, you've got to be on TikTok. I love you. Like, come on. My whole team here is pointing at me and laughing at me and go, go, Harry, go, go, Harry, go. But seriously, we get 44 million plays a month. I know, but do you know it's like the Chinese? Do you know what? The Chinese are listening to my podcast. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm afraid that they're taking your DNA. Well, I mean, like, honestly, I love it. People are like, oh, they're going to steal your TikTok searches. And I'm like, my TikTok searches are protein recipes and bicep curls. I mean, good luck, Beijing. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> so I just, yeah, yeah I hilarious. I hear you. So if you in 2014, the- 15, like the podcast was the next big thing in media, what's it in 2023? That question was asked by uh, Oren Chernoff. The rate of copycats in content has never been greater. Um, you know, we started very prominently with the kind of TikTok style interview uh, clips. They've been taken totally by everyone. And ours are still massive and very, very successful, but they've been commoditized. Mm-hmm. So the commoditization of content type and style is very rapid today. Um, what's the next? I think it's maybe worryingly creative extremes, which is like bluntly um, Mr. Beast style. Give away an island. How do we, you know, blow up a building in, you know, I don't know, whatever, 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 whatever. Like some crazy thing that he's going to do in the middle of a desert. Um, whatever crazy thing Mr. Beast does. I think creative extremes is very, very much where we're probably going to go. It's pretty capital intensive, so I don't know how that will play out. I think a lot of people look at the All In podcast and say, ah, are we going to go to kind of panel-style discussions? No. Um, All In podcast is actually fantastic for the chemistry that they have together. doesn't really work if you don't have that chemistry. Um, and by the way, Jason is an incredible moderator. Amazing. People don't give it. Yeah. Um, I didn't think he gets enough credit for that. And a great um, dinner guest, by the way. He's very funny. I, sadly, haven't had dinner with him yet. But um, but so I, I think, honestly, kind of creative extremes and then specialization. Really, really focused. Like, you know, uh, consumer retail in Tel Aviv will be podcasts. Um, and so I think you'll get hyper, hyper focused and then creative extremes. The next question is what, from Yael and a couple others, What's the problem you most want to fix in the world? <laughs> uh, multiple cirrhosis. Uh, because your mom. Yeah. Um, Mum's got MS. I'm also very frustrated in many ways. You know, we were always told for years that diet didn't impact her MS. Well, she used to have about eight relapses a year uh, when she was drinking. And then my mother actually stopped drinking. And she's had one relapse in 18 months. Wow. Eight in 12 months to one in 18 months. The correlation there is the only thing that changed is drinking. Um, so wow. I find that very, very, very frustrating. Um, and I think there's misincentives within healthcare. Healthcare is completely free. Like the whole world, Michael, is broken now. I think very, very significantly. Not more than ever because it's been, we've been through tough times. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it's significantly challenged across healthcare across education, across climate. And I think this is why it's never been a more exciting time to be a venture investor. Will you invest in healthcare? Do I invest in healthcare? Absolutely. Good. Um, But but also, you know, this is the funny thing. My first ever deal was in healthcare, okay? And it was an okay deal. Okay. Um, But not great by any means. The hardest thing as a venture investor, and you'll agree with me on this one, I'm sure, is mental plasticity, is making sure that on the next healthcare deal, you come with a fresh mind, untarnished by the fact that, yes, you might have just lost money on a healthcare deal, but the next one could be great. I really believe that, especially in early stage, 
you know, uh, optimists make money and cynics are right. And you really have to keep a fresh canvas for every opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I think that would be very much front and center for me. I'm very passionate about MS. I'm also very passionate about male eating disorders, bulimia that young men suffer from, or like anorexia that young men suffer from. Um, I, I thought I that was a bulim- female thing, to be perfectly honest. So I'm glad you've made me aware. <laughs> so no, men, men, men sadly get eating disorders too, but bluntly, they don't get any uh, more much attention at all. Um, it's massively on the rise. Um, the kind of glorification or uh, you know idolization of these Instagram trainers causes men to be bulimic, anorexic. It's a terrible, terrible pandemic. Um, eating disorders right now. Eating disorders is one of the most under-discussed and worrying themes, I think, in Western society today. Interesting. Tell me, how do you relax? Um, do you relax? I mean... I run uh, to relax. I find that very relaxing. I listen to David Goggins when I run, and he tells me that I'm pathetic. <laughs> I don't even know who that uh, is. Uh, oh, my God. David Goggins. Uh, and he, he has this line, who's going to carry the boats? And every time I will send a video of my brother uh, to, my, to my brother of myself running, and I will literally be screaming, who's going to carry the boats? And the kind of takeaway from that is you are the one who's going to carry the boats. you got to take responsibility. And you've got to be strong enough when called upon to carry the boats. Um, it's it's like, you know, he says, training is building calluses on your mind. You have to be ready for the day when you are called. Interesting. And, and that changes a lot about how I think. Do you take vacation? Um, I'm taking my first vacation ever with uh, my, my girlfriend and a LP of mine, uh, one of my biggest LPs uh to to their kind of holiday home um and i'm doing that in july otherwise no i don't and the answer is honestly, in europe? My, it's in europe it's in france Amazing. um the answer on like holidays is like i think holidays are for people who know who they are in many ways i, I have been so wrapped up in 20 bc for the last eight years when you remove yourself from work and you've only done work for your whole adult life Never went traveling, never even went to university, really. I am 20 BC. I know we should separate identities. There's zero separation. But when you do then go on holiday, you have this real question of, well, who am I? (laughs) And there's um, a very uncomfortable moment of staring into the abyss and realizing that actually you don't know. So that's why I don't call it. Uh, you might find that in France. I think the honest truth is I, I actually know now, um, which has been a recent revelation over you know, the last year or so, giving up drinking, um, you know, finding someone special, um, knowing that it's not money. I thought it was money, often. Uh, it's not. I love the park and espresso. Five bucks. Um, and so I have a lot more grounding on that now, but I didn't before. Um, and so, yes, I, I will take this vacation, um, but it will be my first. And are you going to really turn off? It's only for a week and, <laughs> and no, I will not turn off, but I've also naturally done quite a lot of studies into the time it takes to turn off on a vacation. 
<laughs> and scientific studies suggest Chill that out! Relax! It, 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 it suggests that it takes about 13 to 14 days before you will properly turn off. And so I'm actually then rationalizing this as saying, well, if it takes 13 to 14 days, I scientifically should not turn off at all. Winning. You, you, know, what you, you. you know what you need, by the way? You, you need the Sabbath when we turn off entirely for one day a week. No phones, no connectivity. It'll be helpful. Do you know what? Actually, I've always looked at the Sabbath as this incredible time of purity. I, I love family. I'm a real family man. I love family dinners. Um, there's nothing that makes me happier. And I think it's one of the most wonderful occasions of purity and love that I, w- I would wish we had, but we don't have it. And it's very hard to instill in a non-Jewish home, I think, in terms of the uh, discipline you have around the timing, people being there. And so I would love it, but sadly, it's quite difficult to implement. <laughs> do you, you know, do kind of this uh, explore, exploration that you're on for who's Harry, um, how does that tie to settling down, having a family? You mentioned earlier you didn't want to uh, drink so that you would be awake to take your kids to the park in the morning. It sounds like that's starting to be part of the who is Harry. More than 20 VC, there's, you know, Harry, the family man, both th- your current family and maybe future sure. family. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think about that. I think, you know, if I'm being very direct and honest, I think the only way you truly grow up is by having children. Um, and that's not throwing shade at people who don't have children and it's not being disrespectful. But I think having children forces you to realize that actually you are not the most important person in the world. When you're married, you can still go to the gym whenever you want, actually. You can still go and hang out with your friends. They will be fine on their own. When you are a parent, you cannot. They will fall off the chair. They will not be okay. You you have to devote yourself to someone else entirely. And I think that's one of the most magical experiences that you could have. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. They shit on you a lot. They throw up on you a lot. Um, Those and are the a whole, issues, trust me. <laughs> like, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens. I am not naive about that. And so... I think there's that, but I do think, you know, bluntly, whatever day you have ahead of you going into your child's crash and picking them up and hugging them would be a very, very wonderful feeling. And so, yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I would like to be a young father. I think being a young parent is a wonderful thing. Um, and, and I do think about that. Um, and, you know, I always say, people say to me, yeah, what's, what's the vision with 20 VC? What's the vision? It's very simple. I want to be a 75-year-old grandfather with my grandchildren running around my armchair. And I want to say, hey, let's look at, you know, uh, Wix. Or let's look at X company, Y company. And, you know, our family was a tiny part of that journey. And I remember meeting Michael when he was starting in, you know, one room in Tel Aviv. And your grandchildren go, wow, that's amazing. Oh, Harry, I got bad news for you, by the way. What? My kids don't read any of my books and I've written a bunch of them and they don't listen to any of my podcasts. Maybe, maybe one child listens to my podcast and maybe one or two are interested in my investments. And I, I have grandchildren already and I'm not sure they have any interest in what Papa uh, is recording or talking about. So, you know, my prayer for you is that it works out for you the way you're hoping. But even if it doesn't, there's a lot of wonderfulness in having children and grandchildren at a young age do you know what 
I think <laughs> I think I might be being rather hopeful here. I'm hoping I just play it in the kitchen enough. Uh, <laughs> my my brother will sometimes put on Sonos, just like welcome to 20 VC. <laughs> uh, and uh, so yes, maybe I am being uh, hopeful, but I think that's that's very important. But I also like. Yeah, I, and I think about that more and more now, actually. All right. I'm going to turn the rapid fire on you quickly to wrap up. If you were going to write a book, what would it be about? Mental discipline. I like that. Most people are not mentally disciplined. Yeah. They like to be told that it's okay, that you didn't win. Uh, with Children's Day, uh, they're told it's you get a participation medal. No, you didn't win. You should do it again. Like. Yep. There's a lot of softness out there that I don't think has done as well as humanity and like, no, everything's okay. It's, it's, it, like, it's not okay to like not win if you wanted to win. Like that, that's the point. And so I think like, and actually like just everyone says to me, oh, how do you do the work? How do you not burn out? How do you fast? How do you run 30 miles? Because I'm never going to ring the bell. Yeah, I think, by the way, the most, the best venture capitalists uh, have a lot of self-motivation and self-discipline to kind of stay on things and stay with things and stick-to-itiveness that you don't find all over the place for what it's worth. Peter Fenton told me very early on that the best investors in the world have two things. They're hyper-curious and they're hyper-competitive. And the minute you lose one of them, they get out. Yeah. yeah. So what makes you kind of vulnerable and, and human? Did I not come across as vulnerable and human? But yeah, but what causes that? Like, what uh, causes you at an even given time to be vulnerable and human? I think it's actually a real luxury to be have the ability to be vulnerable. And what I mean by that is, you mean you can sit here and opine on this show about being vulnerable about you know the problems that we have and we face. It's very difficult if you haven't, to some extent, been a little bit successful already. And mm-hmm. so, firstly, I appreciate that it's a it's a luxury that comes with a little bit of success. And what causes me to do it? A real desire for more. For more people to do it. More people to say, you know what, I had this problem. And I learned this. And it changed me in this way. It's not weak. I'm not weaker because I had an alcohol problem. I'm stronger. That, like, can't come in the ring with me now. Which brings me to like the last question, which is asked by Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify. Um, which is, what's the most significant hurdle you've had to overcome so far? And what did you learn about yourself in the process? Daniel always asks a very good question, huh? I mean, there are many, by the way. I think one of the lessons when I look at all of my hurdles is that in life you are faced with continuous hurdles. And there are two types of people. Ones that say, this was really, really hard. And, you know, it's okay. Not many people come back from this or not many people get over this. And then there's the other people that say, this is not going to beat me. No way. If you actually just look at mine, you know, I, you know, was bulimic when I was 16, 17, which is quite a serious eating disorder. Um, And then I went to a different school, never really had friends throughout the schooling period. Um, uh, And then I went to a different school. Because I also didn't do very well at that old school. Like, I failed in my exams. Like, not like beats, like failed. This is the other thing. Everyone looks at the entrepreneurs and you put WizKid in it. Yeah, you look at it now. Every story is crafted by great 
you know, publications yeah. and marketers. You know, the Collisons with books in the background of every video conference they do, it's a beautiful craft. Um, and so when I look back, bluntly, the, the, the lesson that I have is you will continuously be faced with failure and shit. And you have a choice of do you accept it or do you decide that only you decide the next steps? And only you can tell yourself that you're not good enough. Every step of the way, Michael, I was told that I wasn't good enough. Every step. There's no way you can be a VC. You're a kid. You're a podcaster. Now they're desperate to come on the show every week. Point being, only you tell yourself you're not good enough. And even then, I think people underestimate themselves. Was but there I think a turning thing, point that you developed that self-confidence that say, hey, I'm going to beat this? Yeah. Were you yeah. learned it about yourself? What was it? Were you on the honest, honest truth naming names? I got down to the final, I don't know, final two or whatever it was of uh, associate or an analyst position at Excel in London when I was 18. And the partnership kind of was split. Half decided that I was great. And half decided that I was too young and I wasn't ready. Um, and I remember uh, getting a call from on a Friday afternoon. I was like in the middle of London and I was, I was ready, you know, and this is like a career defining call sitting on the bench by the Tower of London outside of a press with my lunch. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm ready for the news. <laughs> and then they're like, you are too young. And you're like, in that moment, your dreams are crushed. And it's like the Steve Martin quote, which is like, be so good they can't ignore you. And the truth is, they were probably right. I was too young. And by the way, I would have stopped doing the show and joined as an analyst and an associate. It would not have been the right thing. In hindsight, I'm very grateful. But in the time, it taught me that nothing felt as bad as that moment when I was told absolutely not to my dream by someone who I really respected. And I will build such a big business that you will regret it. And where did that you was a, find that? That I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make you regret this. That I, I that I'm good enough. I can do this. Where'd you find that? That I can lose the weight. That I can. I'm gonna be in venture capital and I'm gonna build a media brand. Where did you find that? I think that anyone can do anything if they work hard enough. I really do. There are some physical constraints. Sadly, you know, I'm not going to be in the MBA. Uh, I'm not tall enough. You know, some people don't have the bone density for being a great swimmer. Sure. But generally, I am not. I think more and more people need to understand that they are capable of so much more. And actually, with hours and with strategy and craft, you can do more than you think. And I just always believe that. Um, I'm a deep believer in that, too. And I think, you know, one of the things you've led the way on, Harry, candidly is is exactly this is to empower millions and millions of people to believe that they can touch this thing called entrepreneurship called venture capital um and in a world where entrepreneurs are, are so critical um and in a world where it's going to get harder to earn kind of a uh, white collar uh income your empowerment of other people candidly is inspiring my, my, michael you know you touched on 20 sales this is eight incredible women who are the best best go-to-market experts in the world they are freaking amazing i want them on every cap table and to be very clear i have no carry in their funds they are the gps they have all the carry so just to be clear on that but they are exceptional people and they deserve a fund with great lps 
and they deserve the chance to also invest. I am so proud to that they let me help them in that way. And I look at my mother, and I, you know, bluntly, my mother wasn't afforded chances that she should have got. And if I can be a tiny vehicle of change in some of those cases, fuck, I'm going to take it. You know, that's amazing inspiration. You know, my own Genesis story is that uh, I had an interaction with a rabbi when I was 19 years old who who told me that if I moved to Israel and enabled 10,000 other people to earn an honest and decent living, it would be an incredible uh, mitzvah, you know, religious commandment and, and life mission. And so everything you say really resonates. I just want to tell you uh, personally, and I should also make a full disclosure, I'm, I, I'm a tiny LP in Harry's Fund, uh, but uh, you're just an inspiration for a lot of people. So thank you for being you and being so raw and so vulnerable and so and so present with us here. And just keep up the amazing work, Harry. Michael, I have people don't know, but you've been an amazing advisor to me in the tough times. I call you when times are tough, and I really appreciate our friendship. And so thank you for always being there for me. And I've been uncomfortable, but also loved having the tables turned. <laughs> I appreciate you doing it, Harry. Thanks so much. And to all our listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And by the way, you can also find the podcast on YouTube as well, and not just listen while you're running on the treadmill. And, uh, you know, see you in Tel Aviv or London soon. I will see you soon.